Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. On Saturday, February 26th, one of the most remarkable political documents of this century appeared briefly online at the Russian state-owned Novosti News website. There will now no longer be a Ukraine which is anti-Russia. Russia is restoring its historic completeness, gathering together the Russian world, the Russian people together, in all its totality of great Russians, Belarusians and little Russians. If we had missed this opportunity, then we would have allowed this temporary division to solidify for centuries, and we would not only have betrayed the memory of our ancestors, but we would be cursed by our descendants for having allowed the collapse of the Russian land. We can say without a drop of exaggeration that Vladimir Putin took upon himself a historic responsibility by deciding not to leave the resolution of the Ukraine question to future generations. That was Tom Duval, senior fellow at Carnegie Europe, reading the words of Pyotr Akopov, translated by Georgina Wilson, in a piece that has become a sensation since Duval summarized it in a Twitter thread that 11 million people looked at in its first 24 hours online. I spoke to Tom Duval, who began reporting on post-Soviet Russia three decades ago about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and began by asking him about the strange story behind the Akapov article and apologies for the low-level white noise in the background. Well, a few people have been sharing this. RIA Novosti, which is one of the official Russian news agencies, mistakenly published this article, which they had commissioned for February the 26th, so just the third day of the Russian operation. So it was obviously commissioned in advance, possibly on the day of the invasion, to celebrate victory. It has an 8am timeline. Uh, It was published, Um, then it was later removed from the website, but it's obviously been archived and you can still access it. And bizarrely, someone told me yesterday even that the author who is clearly a bit a bit delusional, still has this article on his Facebook page. So he's 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 still um, he's still proud of it, even though it's celebrating a victory that hasn't happened. One of the things about this this terrible war in Ukraine is that up until the moment it began, a lot of people who have some experience in the area didn't think it would happen because it was obvious that there would be strong resistance from Ukraine, and yet somehow on the Russian side, or the official Russian side, no one realized this would happen. Why was that? Well, this this is an incredible thing, really, is that the, I would say, the entire Russian foreign policy establishment, or 90% of it, I would say most of the Russian foreign ministry, most of the Russian commentators, um, in the West as well, myself included, uh, were saying, this has to be a bluff. We know Putin, we know that he's a nasty piece of work, we know that he's prepared to use violence, we know that he hates the West, but the idea that he would order a complete invasion of a neighbouring sovereign country without any provocation is just too crazy to contemplate. Uh, I guess those who were arguing the opposite were those who had better access to the intelligence reports and, and, you know, could, could see that it was actually going to happen. How do we explain this? Um, well, this, um, I guess, one thing to say is obviously that Putin has been growing more and more 
extreme over the years, and we can obviously talk about that uh, a lot more, Michael. I think the COVID epidemic is very important to to highlight the fact that we've seen these crazy pictures of, of, of Putin with foreign leaders or with his own ministers sitting, you know, not two metres apart as social distancing uh, rules require in this country or did require, but 20 metres away from them. This guy obviously has this terrifying COVID-phobia, which meant that he's spent the last two years meeting almost no one. Uh, he's basically been sitting in a bunker. Um, and then, as we saw from last summer, when he wrote this 5,000-word essay on Ukraine, he's been sitting in this bunker reading history books, Russian nationalist history books, which have been persuading him of this narrative that Ukraine is not a proper country, uh, that the Russian Empire has been cheated of its historical lands, first by Lenin and then by the collapse uh, of the Soviet Union, and that this needs to be reversed. And I guess the only people he's been seeing is a bunch of hardline people with a shared KGB past. So he's been excluding the kind of more, slightly more varied, slightly more varied um, kind of spectrum of, of views and opinion that he would have got over the last 20 years. I think one of the things that interests me in, in this particular screed is the use of little Russian to describe Ukrainians. And I is that, I mean, Great Russia is Great Russia, okay? Little Russia to describe Ukraine. Does it carry the same kind of, I don't know, lesser order, lower order meaning? Yes, this kind of slightly kind of condescending, to, I, think, I think it does. I mean, I think um, you'd have to ask for a, for a better, longer explanation location, you'd have to ask a historian about this. But this this goes back to the kind of 19th century Russian imperial theories. We're, we're, we're skipping over the Soviet Union here, which actually had this language of, of brotherhood and togetherness and, and sort of overcoming nationality through socialism. We're going way back now to the Russian Empire, to this idea that their Slavs deserve to be together, and the Russians, they're the white Russians, who are the Belarusians, and the little Russians, which are the Ukrainians, that the center of the Slavic, this Slavic world is actually Kiev, um, the, the medieval uh, city where um, Rus, as it was called that back in the Middle Ages, um, first adopted Christianity, Orthodox Christianity in the 10th century, and that these lands belong together, that these people want to be together, and various kind of dastardly world leaders and, and geopolitical tricks, including by Lenin, incidentally, have cheated us of, of this Slavic togetherness, um, and that time is running out now for us to reverse that. This idea of condescension that you brought up, does that translate across all of Russia and, you know, th those parts of the country that never really fell away from the old Soviet Union? Or is this something that's really at an official level, as opposed to street level? I think it's hard to say, but I think we can say with some confidence that this narrative has um, got much stronger in the last few years. Um, and I think it's a mistake to think that this there's been a kind of straight line between the collapse of the Soviet Union and what we've seen today. I, I lived in Russia 
and worked there as a journalist in the early 90s, there was very much the feeling there, uh, a regret amongst lots of people at the loss of a common homeland, but also a desire to kind of disentangle us from the Soviet past and to build something new, build a new Russian nation state. Ideas of some kind of commonwealth with, with, with the neighbours, which may be a bit patronising, but certainly didn't at that point have any menacing uh, connotations. Um, and um, Russian nationalism was pretty weak at that point. There were millions of Russians in neighbouring countries and, and a few marginal far-right politicians were calling for their protection through you know acts of aggression and war, um, but that didn't really um, match the public mood. Um, and in the Yeltsin years, these Russian nationalists who were using the word Ruski um, to describe ethnic Russians rather than uh, Rasiski, which means the new Russia, which is a multinational Russia, those people were, were fairly marginal. Um, and um, there was just this, this idea that we had to sort of build this new kind of uh, neighbourhood with respecting basically um, the, the, the old borders of the Soviet Union as the new borders of independent states. That began to change under Putin. These, um, these Russian nationalists uh, became a bit more respectable. But Putin was still basically in his first couple of terms, still um, he was regretting the loss of the Soviet Union, but he was also saying we have to move forward. Um, and there was no, uh, none of this historical stuff in Putin's discourse. That began to change, I guess, 2007. Um, maybe I'm being too long, but I'll give you the, the whole chronology. 2007, there was the famous Munich speech when he said Russia is coming back. We've been humiliated. 2008, the war in Georgia, which was much more limited uh, than this war by a big order of, of magnitude, much more limited. And also the Georgian president, Saakashvili, had great culpability in that war. But it was also uh, Russia using force for the first time in its neighbourhood. And I think it then escalated with 2014, the, the seizure of Crimea. Of course, that was bloodless. Intervention in eastern Ukraine, even though that wasn't actually started by the Russian state, that was started by some um, others, and the Russian state came in later. So it was kind of creeping nationalism entering uh, Putin's discourse. And, and certainly people began to be pretty worried uh, from that point, from 2014. But, it, but as I say, even, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago, people were expecting that Putin was going to kind of threaten Ukraine in some kind of way. But, but almost no one in the Russian establishment, including, I think, probably the vast majority of people in places like the foreign ministry were not expecting that this kind of crazy nationalist official doctrine would be the justification for an all-out war with Ukraine. You're listening to the 160th edition of FRDH Podcast, and it's a conversation with Tom Duvall of Carnegie Europe about Vladimir Putin's intentions in making war on Ukraine. But before we continue, I want to ask you to make a donation so that I can continue to make FRDH. Please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and click on the Donate button. Now, before I return to my talk with Tom, I want to read you a bit more of Pyotr Akapov's article. 
it would be easy to laugh at his words if Vladimir Putin hadn't ordered the Russian army to act out his policy, which Akapov spells out in the conclusion of his brief essay. It reads, The operation in Ukraine is not capable of rallying anyone but the West against Russia, because the rest of the world sees and understands perfectly well. This is a conflict between Russia and the West. This is a response to the geopolitical expansion of the Atlanticists. This is Russia's recovering its historical space and its place in the world. China and India, Latin America and Africa, the Islamic world and Southeast Asia, no one believes that the West leads the world order, much less sets the rules of the game. Russia has not only thrown down a challenge to the West, it has shown that the era of Western global domination can be considered fully and definitively over. The new world will be built by all civilizations and centers of power, naturally, together with the West, united or not, but not on its terms and not according to its rules. If you take even 50% of the reporting about Russian meddling or the Putin regime's meddling into American politics, in a way, it's about finding people who, on the American side, who have a similar worldview, that, you know, this kind of nationalism, I, I prefer to say ethno-nationalism, because that's really what it is. I mean, we all live in, in these multi-ethnic countries now, the amazing thing, of course, about Ukraine, as it is, is that it was incredibly varied. And when your family, uh, that branch of your family was in Odessa, and a branch of my family was in Odessa, and also in the countryside east of what is today Lviv, and in those days was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was Polish, it was Jewish, it was Ukrainian, and through a variety of, of attempts to try and create 19th century style ethno-nationalist states, kind of failed. Although during World War II, you know, Jews were pretty much eradicated from Ukraine and Poles were driven back towards Poland to create something close to a majority Ukrainian entity. But my point is that in America and in Russia, these, we are multi-ethnic states, and yet Putin found that minority who thought, well, you know, America shouldn't be multi-ethnic. It's an ethno-nationalist state, and it's, it should be pure. And he has been able to leverage some of the crazies so that, you know, America it has been split. I, I wonder what you think about whether this kind of 19th century idea of ethno-nationalism really has legs. So long as Putin is willing to put 150,000 troops or risk 150,000 troops invading Ukraine. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, 15, 20 years ago, there was this discourse in Europe, certainly, that we're moving beyond the nation state, that we're in a globalized world, that borders are breaking down, that um, we have this kind of supranational identity more than the nation state and that we're kissing goodbye to these ethno-national conceptions that you know about um, the importance of, of national borders and, and nation states and so on 
and clearly liberals like you and I who who um, come from this you know our own family histories are all about how uh, our ancestors have had multiple nationalities and we kind of I think you and I are not I, I don't know if I'm speaking for you Michael we, we thought this was was probably history and now we have this revival of the nation state we have this kind of civilizational discourse not just in Russia but in places you know in China in India in Turkey in um, lots of places and very much this appealing to history to bolster uh, an aggressive foreign policy against the neighbors it does feel like a, we've, we've kind of turned the clock back a century and of course uh, in the United States as well it's not um, immune to these trends or in, or in Brexit Britain we're not immune to these trends so certainly I think this is one of the things that has emboldened Putin this belief that um, he's pushing about against this kind of liberal world order which has failed and that, that, that he's actually he thinks that he's actually on the right side of this kind of revisionist history he probably sees partners around the world in people in China in, in uh, Turkey where it's a kind of frenemy relationship but he certainly has a similar worldview in that sense to Erdogan and 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 in the United States in Trump so I, I guess that was possibly one of the calculations that made him think okay if I invade Ukraine uh, they're not going to resist like they would have done uh, 10 or 20 years ago and I'm glad to say that in fact of course he did miscalculate I mean it, it's a terrible a terrible terrible price for the people of Ukraine but he did miscalculate and he is being proved wrong. What will happen given that America and NATO its NATO allies are pretty much committed to not getting involved militarily besides providing ammunition and and other support to Ukraine when you look at his project and, and I go back to this Novosti article it may have been written by someone trying to you know show teacher that he really does get the lesson and he may not have ghostwritten this for Putin it may be an independent thought but you know clearly the idea is we will conquer Ukraine join with Belarusia and that will extend our borders right up to NATO it will isolate the baltic states and should people be worried that Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania would then be facing a slightly more uncertain future. And, and as their NATO members, are we going to have to get used to the idea that perhaps the next move after Ukraine would be on these countries? I mean, we have so many questions, Michael, and we're in you know less than a week into this war, and we just don't know the answers. And I think a lot of this obviously will be determined by how well or how badly or how long, how long this military campaign goes on in Ukraine. You know, what is the Russian objective for Kiev? Is it just to overthrow the Zelensky government and then withdraw and, and install some, you know, puppet Ukrainians? Or is it actually to completely subjugate Kiev and, and try and withdraw borders? We don't know what the intention is. Maybe they don't know what the intention is. And obviously, a lot of will depend on how much resistance there is and there's a lot of resistance clearly there are areas of eastern and southern ukraine which are already falling under russian control which it will it will be very hard for the ukrainians to recapture and you know there's a, a lot of population there who certainly 
don't like a Russian invasion, I'm sure, but but we're never particularly connected to the um, central government in Kiev either, because because Ukraine has always been a fairly weak state um, in which um, the provinces felt little connection to the centre. So a lot of questions, and then how where if Putin has success, where will he stop? We just don't know. Would it be he would try something against the Baltic states or in Georgia? You know, so many questions. Um, I think we can confidently say that Putin is sort of backed into a corner here and he will just keep on going. Uh, he He's obviously decided to burn a hell of a lot of bridges and it's going to be a very, very, very uh, rocky ride, unfortunately. And, um, you know, your guess is as good as mine how this will play out. I tend to instinctively resist the great man theories of history. I, I do mind that, that history rides on a tidal pull and people arise at certain times but you know the great man thing that shapes history bends the world to his will I tend to be very skeptical about it but as we've been talking and watching these last few days unfold you begin to to think that you know this really is a single human being who has managed to gather to himself all the power of the state uh, including nuclear weapons. And is this a conflict with a single individual, or is he backed up by enough other forces within uh, contemporary Russia? Well, I, I think it is Putin's war, very much. I don't believe that the circle of people who made this decision was very large. We even saw these crazy scenes at the Russian Security Council just over a week ago, where Putin was publicly humiliating the head of his the KGB um, inheritor, the FSB, and and that was pre-recorded. Um, they could easily have cut that out, but they actually it was pre-recorded, and they showed it later to demonstrate Putin's power over a very powerful, supposedly a very supposedly powerful individual. So there is this kind of power vertical uh, in Russia, and I'm sure <laughs> we would all pray for him to be removed but I, I um but obviously this is a man who wakes up every morning and and works out how to continue in office and and, and not be deposed so we shouldn't really be holding our breath for that but i mean the other thing to say is that this russian leaders and, and putin in particular it's kind of authoritarianism with public consent that he very much values this kind of feeling of public consent. So let's watch how the economy fares, um, you know, people queuing at banks to, to, to change rubles into dollars uh, as the ruble falls, uh, people suffering economic blowback. I don't think it will be instantaneous, but I think this will erode Putin's legitimacy o over a longer period. And we also know from Russian history that the Tsar can fall pretty quickly that that one moment he's powerful but but once a regime unravels it can do so very quickly and that can also be an incredibly messy and bloody process we know also from russian history i'm not saying it's something necessarily uh, to look forward to but you know i i do think it is in the long run a grave miscalculation by putin about ukraine and also about russia but I think in the short to medium run, 
um, it's going to be incredibly bad. First of all, for the people of Ukraine, possibly for some other neighbors, but, but basically for all of us, actually. You know, in, in 1956, and I'm old enough to remember that. I mean, I was a boy, but I can remember it. 1956 in Hungary and in 1968 in Czechoslovakia, in essence, the we all understood there was a Cold War and that this was a sphere of influence that the Soviet Union had over these countries. And it was a sphere of influence agreed upon in the conferences at the end of World War II between the West and Stalin. But what's different this time around, and I think is very frustrating for people, is that the Cold War is over and this Ukraine, this deeply flawed democracy, but young democracy, is free, in theory, of being under that understanding that came out of World War II about what parts of Europe would be under Stalin's dominion. And I think that a lot of people feel very frustrated at the moment that there's nothing more that can be done to kind of intervene on behalf of Ukrainians. Yeah, I mean, and, and it is very frustrating. And obviously, one looks back to the, the elder Bush's war with Saddam over Kuwait, which, you know, was was controversial, but certainly justified pretty much, I think most people would agree under international law that, that Saddam had invaded a, a a sovereign state back in, in 1991, or, or at the way NATO uh, was used against eventually after a much prevarication against the Bosnian Serbs at the end of the Bosnian War. And what's different is that Putin is daring Western powers uh, to defend Ukraine um, because he, he says, and he's been explicitly warning because I have nuclear weapons. And, and this is the dilemma is that war in Ukraine is bad, but nuclear war would be a lot worse. And I think we have to be, you know, looking that in the face and doing everything we can to, to, to stop this happen, short of kind of inviting some kind of nuclear escalation. <sighs> he seems to have forgotten mutually assured destruction. Or maybe he just guesses that no American president would engage in such an act. Tom Duvall, thank you very much. And thank you, for, thank you and to Georgina for the excellent translation of this remarkable document which has to reflect to a certain degree what goes on between the ears of Vladimir Putin, even if he didn't write it. He probably read it. He read it. <laughs> Good. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks again to Tom Duvall for making time to speak with me. If you do social media, you can find versions of the Akapov article at Tom's Twitter and Facebook pages. I urge you to read it. Very rarely can you see the mad thinking behind a dictator's military action so clearly expressed. And please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.